Tonight we're in Acts chapter 13, looking at verses 4 through 12. I will go ahead and read for us verses uh, 1 through 12 uh, for the help of context. Again, let's listen to the Lord's word. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. This is the Lord's word. If you'll bow with me, friends, let's ask the Lord for his help. Again, O Lord, we thank you for this night. And as we have just sung, even lifting our hearts to you, we pray for your spirit's blessing, his quickening, that you would give us ears, Father, to understand, to hear, Um, eyes that would perceive the truth in this passage of scripture, that you would apply this word now to us, to a congregation, um, in a time that is uh, where the light of the gospel is becoming dimmer and where opposition is increasing. We ask, O Lord, that you would embolden and strengthen your people, that you would set our hearts uh, to, uh, to rejoicing, to be hearts that are full of peace, knowing, O Lord, that you are the sovereign Lord and you will not be mocked and that your kingdom will advance and you will accomplish all that you have set about to accomplish. Make us, we pray, your willing servants and make us, O Lord, um, to have eyes for the Lord Jesus above all else. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we started out a couple of weeks back looking at a, a new chapter Uh, in the church, both literally beginning chapter 13, as well as figuratively, as the church here begins to reach out formally to the Gentiles, not exclusively, mind you, but to engage the nations. As we looked at verses 1 through 3, we considered that the work of missions is the work of the church. It is not the work, hear me when I say this, it is not the work of the parachurch. You know, we have to stop giving up the privileges that the Lord gives us and relegating them to everyone else. The privilege for speaking the truth of the gospel is a privilege that has been entrusted 
to the church, not to the parachurch. And I'm not saying that they don't do good. I'm not saying any of that. But it's the church's function to bring about, uh, to advance the gospel, to, to advance the kingdom of God. Um, <clears throat> here, the church is called and commanded by the Lord to advance his kingdom, the reign of Christ over the lives of mankind. And we were told that there were prophets and teachers in the church in Antioch. The church, ministering to the Lord in fasting, was directed by the Holy Spirit to set apart, he says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And the church obeys her Lord. Then when they had fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and they sent them away. The Lord by his spirit is moving his people to be his witness further out into the world. It's what we are called to do. It's what we see here in the book of Acts. It's the work of the spirit. In fact, we've said that the book of Acts is actually a history, a record of the spirit, the Holy Spirit moving his acts, his, his work. In, in advancing the kingdom of God out among the nations. And we see this very plainly here uh, in, in chapter 13. So you would think that this is a great thing, and it is. And we would uh, truly, however, be naive to think that his call and command would be easy. I think it was Susan who mentioned this morning in Sunday school about the Lord Jesus commanding his disciples to climb into the boat. What could be safer than climbing into the boat, into a boat with Jesus, right? And what does the Lord bring upon them? He brings upon them storms. Now, he's the sovereign. And as I heard one man say one time, it is better to be in the boat with Jesus during the storms than to be outside the boat. (laughs) You know, it's better, always best to be where the Lord Jesus is. Uh, So we would be naive to think that the Lord's call, his command, would be easy and without challenge or opposition. Here, Luke, as he's recording the history of the first missionary journey, by this record, I believe he is encouraging the church to understand that the work of missions, the work of the ministry, will not be without opposition. It will not be without opposition. And yet, the work that the Lord calls us to as a church and his ministry will not fail. There is that encouragement. There will be opposition, but guess what? The Lord wins. He always wins. So we want to consider first, um, we want to consider how ought we to be looking at missions? How ought we to be looking at ministry? It was a strange thing. Um, It was in Fort Wayne, and we were doing our first kind of our first big push at backyard Bible clubs. Instead of vacation Bible school, we didn't have a building, so we had to go to our backyards, and we invited all sorts of neighborhood children. And on the same day, not coincidence, our dog had to be put down. Something happened to our dog, and all he could do was run in circles. And when he got hyper, he would just run in circles faster. And, and the other leader, that was in the Strong household, and the other leader, their family, their pet rabbit, they went outside and it, it was dead in the cage. So the very first day we start our backyard Bible clubs, we are met with a dead dog and a dead rabbit, and the children were all like, 
I don't feel so happy. <laughs> of course, the leaders didn't feel happy. It was a great dog. And um, it was a very hard thing. But this is, this is what the way we need to start thinking. I, I, we've become too Madison Avenue. We've become too, um, too confident in our programs, too confident in our methodologies. We're too confident in all of these things. And we're setting ourselves up for, for great disappointment when we think that the Lord who calls us to do ministry is all of a sudden going to make it easy, and it isn't. It isn't. And that's not what the Lord promised, is it? The battle, however, is the Lord's. Listen to these two verses, 4 and 5. The battle is the Lord's. There's a lot of background here. Um, but I want to show you here that, that it's the Lord who's, who's behind all of this. Verses 4 and 5. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. As we begin to look at these verses, we are once again reminded that missions is the Lord's idea. This does not originate in a boardroom with high-level executives and a bunch of entrepreneurial wannabes. That is not the formula we see here. And I really, I really resent that, uh, that approach to, to missions. Um, one of the greatest books, and it's just a little book, but it was in the OPC, our denomination. They said, how to plant a church. And you know what the, you know, you know what the instructions were? <clears throat> you ready? Pray and preach <laughs> and you evangelize and you worship and it was all the things that we see right here in the scriptures these are the things and and, and again modern church technology techniques and all of this you got to do your demographic studies and you got to plan and you got to look for cities of certain sizes and you've got to do and we've mapped it all out we've made it formulaic it's baloney I'm sorry, it's baloney. You look at how the early church went about church planting, and I just think there's no mistaking the kinds of things we ought to be focusing on here. We are told that it is the church in Antioch which laid hands on and sent Barnabas and Saul away. The church was the instrumental cause here, but the principal cause or the efficient cause was and is the Spirit of God. Notice what he says, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. They were sent out by the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit of God who regenerates. It is the Spirit of God who gives gifts. It is the Spirit of God who unites us to the mystical body of Christ. It is the Spirit of God who has set them apart and called them to ministry. He used the church to accomplish his will. But we, and, and we must stop thinking that the church is some kind of side note or an incidental organization. The church is front and center representing our Lord to the world, but it is not the church from where these men draw their commission. It is from the Lord himself. So understand, the church is central, the church is important, but the sending agent is none less than God himself. They are sent out by the Holy Spirit. And this is an important point to remember. Again, with prayer, with recognition by the church, but it was the Holy Spirit who sent these men out. So we're told 
They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Again, um, some background here. They are sent from Antioch, which is located on the Orentis River, uh, and it's near the Mediterranean coast. Seleucia served as a seaport for the city of Antioch. Because Antioch was in a mountainous region, Barnabas and Saul travel a relatively short distance down to the seacoast. From this seaport, then, they sail to the island of Cyprus, if you can imagine in your mind where the Mediterranean is. By the way, Cyprus might be another place we could draw some food from from our next, because it's technically inside the Mediterranean Sea. Um, Cyprus is this island just off the coast, an easy day's sailing. Um, you could see it, they say, on a clear day. You can stand on the coast, and you could see the island off in the distance, Cyprus. Why Cyprus? Um, why, why this place? We don't know exactly, we are not told, but it may be that we don't need to be told as it is determined as a matter of priority. When you have good news to share, who do you share it with? You share it with people who are most dear to you. When my mother, uh, who's now with the Lord, was alive and there would be some good news, like one of my children was pregnant or something, she would be the first person I'd call. Mom, guess what? And, uh, and I'm sorry I don't get to do that still because my children are still having children. <laughs> um, but I'd want to call her. I'd want to tell her first because she was, uh, aside from my own wife and, and sweet children, she was the most dear woman to me. So you tell those who are closest to you. You tell your families. You tell your friends. Cyprus happened to be the birthplace of Barnabas. So in in Acts 4.36, we're told that he is a Cyprian. He's a Levite. He was a Cyprian by birth. And so so Barnabas, who is the the head of this group right now, and notice, again, uh, commentators point this out. You notice up to this point, it's Barnabas and Saul Barnabas and Saul. It was Barnabas who was chosen to go to Antioch to care for Antioch. And it's Barnabas who goes and finds Saul and brings him back to Antioch so that these two for a year are teaching all these people and the church is just growing. And it's Barnabas and Saul then who are chosen by the Holy Spirit. So we have Barnabas. Could it be that he's saying, well, where do we start? Um, How about we go to Cyprus? I know a lot of people there. I know a lot of people who need to hear about the Lord. Very well may be that this is why they went there. Um, As one commentator said, he would have had an intimate knowledge of the inhabitants of the Jewish synagogues and the culture. So where do we start when sharing the news of Christ? My friends, we start with those whom we know best, with those in our homes and families. Those are always a good place to begin with those who are closest to us. And you know, just, just as an aside, yeah, but they also know my sin. All the better to be able to say, let me tell you what Jesus Christ has done for me. Right? And there is some biblical precedence for this. Remember the man who we know as Legion, who was delivered of all those many demons, uh, Jesus, when he asked to follow Jesus, Jesus directed him saying, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And the man does this. Now, this is speculative. I, I, I admit why they're going to Cyprus. But I believe it may very well be the reason why they started in Cyprus as it was the native land of Barnabas and, as another commentator points out, and also of John Mark. 
it seems a likely a reason for them to be able to go to Cyprus is that we know people there who need to know about the Lord. So they arrive in Salamis, which is a city on the eastern side of the island. Salamis was a harbor town. It was a trading center where merchants from Cilicia, Syria, Phoenicia, and Egypt traded olive oil, wool, wine, and grain. And in the course of time, said one commentator, <clears throat> this port city attracted large numbers of Jews who belonged to the merchant class and who had established several synagogues there. When Barnabas and Saul arrived, these Jewish teachers would have been invited to teach in these synagogues. And I want to point out something, and I'm, I'm pointing out a lot of things, and I hope I will be able to tie it all together in the end. I want you to notice, again, and I'm critiquing modern modern methods of evangelism, I want you to notice where they go. They go to synagogues. They're not going to bathhouses. That's a little tongue-in-cheek. They're not going to athletic events. They're not going to pubs. Um, Understand, as Christians, we are witnesses wherever we go. If we go to the gas station, we go to a restaurant, we leave a tip, the waitress sees us praying. Our actions, our behaviors are always a, a witness of what we do. For, for instance, when we go to a restaurant and we pray over our meal, um, I am especially mindful that I should not be an idiot with the waiter or waitress. And when I'm tipping them, uh, typically I give at least 20% because I want them to say, there's that weird couple that prays, but they always leave a nice tip. I want to adorn the gospel with my behavior. So we're always witnesses wherever we go. But notice that they're not going to the pubs. Why? Because people don't go to pubs to hear about Jesus. They go to pubs to get drunk or to drink. And so they are going to synagogues. They go to synagogues where Jews would gather and worship, where they would read scripture and pray. People were there, Jews and Gentiles, because they were there because they had a fear of God, a reverence for the scriptures. They go where people are engaged with ideas and thinking thoughts about the Lord. Mars Hill, another example where Paul goes there and he sees there are very religious people. There's all these idols and there's this idol to the unknown God. He's there and he's going to engage them about the God they don't know and tell them who this God is that they don't know. And so this is a way we, do, we, we should be thinking about this. We should be mindful. When we go, we go to where people will engage with ideas. And of course, the synagogue was to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the Jew first and, and also to the Greek. And then notice, too, what they bring. They be, began to proclaim the word of God. Um, in the Greek, this is a tense um, which, which has the idea of a continual or a repeated action. So it wasn't one sermon that they brought. It was sermons repeatedly brought to the synagogues. And as we're going to see, they make their way from the east side of the island all the way to the west side of the island. And I imagine it's nearly 100 miles. So I imagine they've stopped and probably talked to a lot of people about the gospel to a lot of Jews who were on that island, they most likely shared the gospel to them. So they proclaimed the word. They announced the word. They declare it. They make it uh, publicly known. They herald it. Um, and they proclaim the word of God, that is the scriptures. My friends, they preach 
the scriptures and Christ, Jesus, as the fulfillment of those scriptures. Remember, what did the Jews know? They know only the law of Moses. They know only what the Old Testament has said. I think that's another reason, as I was preparing for this and I happened to see that video, it just brought me to tears to see these Jewish people saying, ah, you know, I hear he's supposed to be someone great. I don't think he's come yet. I don't know anything about this Jesus. And here these two missionaries are trying to talk to them about their Messiah. And you can imagine that here are these Barnabas and Saul and John are working their way across this island and these many of these Jews don't even know, sitting in the synagogues, listening to Isaiah being read, listening to Jeremiah being read, reading the law of Moses, following all of the, the forms and all of their traditions and doing these things, not even knowing that the one that all of these things pointed to has come, that fulfillment has come. They come preaching the word of God. And that now even the Gentiles should come and believe this good news. They do not come with gimmicks. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm very critical of this. Um, but remember the 80s, the early 80s. We, well, we have phone banks. Well, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to call everyone and we're bound to get numbers of people to come. Yeah, and when then we come and we give them balloons and we give them a rock and roll uh, good time. And look what's happened to the church. We compromised it. We compromised the gospel. We made it an, an endeavor and entertainment. And, we, and consequently, we filled the churches with people who weren't interested in spiritual things. They were interested in entertainment. And then you stop the entertainment, and where do the people go? They leave because you, you draw them in um, with what you call them with. And then if you don't continue to give them that, they leave. But notice, what do they bring? They bring the word of God. Christianity is about truth. It's not about entertainment. It's not about gimmicks or sports. Here of missionaries, we're going to do friendship evangelism. We're going to spend tens of thousands of dollars flying over and playing our French horns. Nothing wrong with playing your French horn. And please go to Austria all day long if you want and play your French horn. But don't make that and call it a mission. These men go and they preach the word. They go and they tell people, this is what God has done. This is the condition of your soul. The modern church, we're crazy in the United States. And it's because we're not listening to the scriptures or following the examples. I'm really serious about this. I'm dead serious about this kind of thing. I heard the most beautiful story about in Belize as I was meeting and meeting with elders, who these elders, you know what they were in the church there in Belize when I was down there back in the 90s? These were the children who used to sit under a tree while a man from Mexico walked across the border and sat down and opened his Bible and read to these children the word of God. These are the people who are missionaries. These are the people who are now elders and ministers in that church. It'll never work. You've got to have something with electronics associated with it. Give them the word. This is what these men do. They come and they bring the word. They proclaim the truth. And God 
says Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when God was well pleased through foolishness, the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. You see, having the right, having the ability to speak the gospel, you understand how important that is to the church? You understand why our First Amendment is such a good thing? Why it's worth fighting for? Now, if, if the day comes when they strip us of that First Amendment, what are we going to do? We're going to preach the word. <laughs> and we're going to go to jail. And you know what we're going to do there? We're going to preach the word in jail. And we're going to see people come to know the Lord. But, but it's important. You see, it's the word. Christianity is, is truth. And we proclaim truth. People don't care whether Christians can have a good time too. That's not important. Who cares? But what does matter is that people come to know the Lord. And so we are told, finally, and they also had John as their helper. John has come with Barnabas and Saul to give assistance to the men in whatever way may have been needed. Um, While they're focused on the ministry of of the word and prayer, uh, John is there to assist them. John will play a significant role coming up in the story. But for now, all we need to know about John is that he's with them. He wasn't chosen, set apart by the Spirit, but they're grooming this man for ministry. They're, they're having him come along and use his gifts so that he can too be a blessing to them. So here, again, in verses 4 and 5, uh, we're given quite a picture. Again, they are sent out by the Spirit. They're chosen by the Spirit. They're called, gifted, prayed for. They're carrying the word of God, and they are assisted by broader, uh, broader gifts from the church. They are assisted by John. They had everything they could need to have success in the ministry of the gospel. You could just imagine people saying, especially if they were Americans, man, we're going to conquer this thing. We're going to turn this town upside down for Jesus Christ. All systems are go. Everything is ideal. Everyone is just going to fall on their faces. Um, they're going to worship the Lord. And it's going to be great. How exciting. Not. My friends, we can have everything right. We can have the Spirit calling us, the church backing us in prayer. We can have an audience and be the best and most faithful preachers and, and, and be given, able to give ourselves wholeheartedly to the work. And the ministry will be met with opposition and you should count on it, and you should expect it. I should expect it. I think that's probably one of the things, and I don't know, I try to figure this thing out. Why is it so upsetting when you meet with opposition? Is it because I grew up in the 70s and 80s where uh, you know, inflation dropped and, and we had plenty of money and we could go eat out all the time? Was it because my life just was relatively easy maybe my parents didn't yell at me enough or something I don't know I don't know what it is uh, in school in seminary they don't talk about the hardships they're just like oh you just do this this and this you just go and tell them this tell them drop John Calvin Martin Luther give them some good you know everyone's gonna love you you're not gonna have any problems boy if I could go if anyone's listening out there if I could go to seminary again, if I could teach something, I would want to prepare men for hardship. Because I think it's, it's, it's one of the hardest things, and it's what Satan uses to discourage his men so that they stop talking about the Lord. 
And you see this right in this passage. Everything is good. Everything is wonderful. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better missions plan, a missions philosophy. They have everything that is right, everything that should be going on, and then everything is, is opposed. Ministry, your ministry, the mission, if you're doing it right, will be met with opposition. Listen to verses 6 through 11. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. So for first, uh, Luke introduces us here to this prophet and to the proconsul and Paphos. Again, Barnabas and Saul and John have gone through the whole island as far as Paphos. Uh, uh, Cyprus was an imperial province of the Roman Empire and was under the jurisdiction of the Roman Senate. Here they've traveled nearly 100 miles from the city of Salamis on the eastern side to Paphos on the western side. The city of Paphos was noted for its beautiful buildings and a temple dedicated to the goddess of Aphrodite who was the goddess of love, beauty, pleasure, and procreation. The city became the administrative and religious center of the island, as well as the residence of the Roman proconsul, who is at the center of this story. Luke notes that in Paphos, Barnabas and Saul and John found or met a magician. And we're not talking about the kind who pulls coins out of little children's ears. This is a man who interpreted dreams and who had dabbled in the occult. He is a false prophet. He is a Jewish false prophet. His name, Bar-Jesus, means son of Jesus or son of Joshua. Um, It is someone whose name people uh, would have esteemed. The son of Jesus or the son of Joshua. I mean, Joshua was the one who led the people into the promised land. And if, if he had taken this name to be the son of Jesus, here he's clearly trying to ride on the coattails of Jesus of Nazareth. But he's someone who would consider himself a famed person, somebody who would set himself up as somebody quite important and who should be followed. In Jeremiah 23, 25 through 32, if you would listen to this, Um, Again, he is a Jewish false prophet. He should know quite well how the Lord spoke of false prophets. In Jeremiah 23, 25 and following. The Lord says, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long? Is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood? Even these prophets of the deception of their own heart who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams which they relate to one another, just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal. 
The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from each other. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare the Lord declares. Behold, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and related them and led my people astray by their falsehoods and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them or command them, nor do they furnish this people the slightest benefit, declares the Lord. Uh, Bar-Jesus, a Jewish false prophet, we could say of him that he did not furnish this people the slightest benefit. So what's he doing there? What's he doing there? He works for the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul was appointed by the Roman Senate. Usually he ruled for one year and had absolute military and judicial authority. This man, we are told, is a man known for being intelligent. That is, he has understanding, he's wise, or he is learned. He is someone who's intrigued with religion. Here's a Jewish prophet. He doesn't necessarily consider him false. Luke says he's false. Paul will say he's false. But here, Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, he's a man of, of intellect. He's a man of knowledge. He's a man who's curious about these things. And so he pulls him into his, his service. Um, again, he's employed. He is interested in religious and philosophical things. He was open to religious instruction from Jewish teachers, which makes sense when you consider that now Barnabas and Saul and John have made their way across the island and they are now becoming known uh, to these people. And Sergius Paulus, we are told, summoned Barnabas and Saul uh, to hear the word of God. He's interested to hear what these Jewish teachers have to say. So he summons them to come. The authority on the island in that place was eager to hear from them. And what do they come and deliver? Once again, they come and deliver the word of God. What was that word that they delivered? You know, we're not told. But here's what we can surmise. The false prophet hated them. <laughs> the false prophet doesn't want the proconsul to take this matter to heart. If I were a betting man, um, I think it would be safe to say that they told the, the proconsul in no ambiguous terms that the Messiah has come to deal with our sin, that judgment is coming on this world due to sin, that he must turn from his sin and believe upon Christ. It was not a feel-good message, and I can guarantee you that the false prophet was one who was accustomed to bringing feel-good messages and tickling the ears. Right? That's what he does. He comes and he tells the proconsul what he wants to hear, not what he needs to hear. These men of God, Barnabas and Saul, come and tell the man what he needs to hear. That's a faithful minister. He doesn't tickle the ears. He tells you what you need to hear because ultimately he understands he is responsible to the Lord and he's responsible for the souls of the people over which he is he's called to minister. <clears throat> they deliver the truth, the whole truth, and it is delivered in love for the man. 
Again, the false teacher, the false prophet will tell you what you want to hear, not what you need to hear. He is an ear tickler, and no doubt he is doing it because it's a sweet gig. It's a lucrative job. This is how I make my living. I sit in the courts, and when the pro-counsel says, hey, tell me about this. Oh, oh, I had a dream. This is what you should do. This is what you should think. You are great. You are magnanimous. Everyone loves you kind of thing. So notice, Elimus, the magician, for so his name is translated, says, says uh, Luke, he was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. The gospel is opposed. He is a false prophet. He has security by being in the proconsul service. These guys come along, and they're rocking the boat, telling this fellow the truth. He does all he can to belittle and undermine the message of the truth. How? Again, it doesn't take much to, to figure this out. Was he laughing off into the corner? <clears throat> Is he rolling his eyes? Was he belittling, scoffing? Was he contradicting? Was he using emotional manipulation? Was he making ad hominem attacks? These are the kinds of things that go on. Um, I remember I was in town here trying to share the gospel. I had John Anderson was with me. And we were trying to, to share the gospel. And every time I opened my mouth, one lady in the group would go, oh, he just makes me sick to my stomach when he speaks. And she said it loud enough for everyone to hear. And I thought, this is just like a limus. I'm pretty sure this is the kind of stuff. Oh, they just make me sick. This isn't the kind of thing I, I would prophesy. You know, it's, it's weird. Um, people hate truth. The devil hates truth. I heard today, I heard today, someone called our church a cult. A cult. I want to find out why they think we're a cult. What's your definition of a cult? I don't tell you what to drink. I don't tell you what to wear. I might have told you to wear clothes a time or two, but I've never said what. Don't tell you what to, to eat. Or, and if you're missing church, I will reach out to you and say, hey, watch, for, watch out for your soul. Don't, don't neglect the gathering together of the saints. I will say things like that. I will call us all to repentance. I will call us to obey the Lord if those are things that make a cult. But, but you see, someone in town says something like that, and what does it do? It's a trying to discredit the gospel from this, from this congregation. These things go on. It's, it's nuts, but they go on. This man, Elimus, is doing whatever he can to turn Sergius Paulus away from believing the truth. My friends, this is how the world works. This is how Satan and false teachers work. Anything they can do to undermine the truth is what people will do. And, and I suppose, we ought to get used to this kind of thing because I'm, I'm thinking it's going to come more often uh, as we take the stands on the truth of God. Elimus, uh, Paul calls Elimus out. He challenges him, and he's, he's not nice. He's not being polite uh, that isn't even the concern, nor should it be the concern, because what is at stake is the eternal soul of an image bearer of God. Remember this, that Paul is, has been sent out by the Spirit. He's been sent out with prayer, 
and he's been sent out with the word of God, proclaiming the word of God. And we're told this, but Saul, who was also known as Paul, this first time we see in, in, the, in, in the scriptures where Saul's name is now Paul, he is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he fixes his gaze on him. And I've wondered about this phrase, you fix your gaze on somebody. When do you fix your gaze on somebody? It's when you're extremely confident. And this is why I think it's important, important for us to remember, brother, that our calling doesn't come from men, it comes from God. That's where our confidence comes from. The church recognizes it, but it's not the church. Because if the church goes liberal and they say, well, we don't like your message anymore, you say, tough beans, it's the Lord who called me. Right? Paul fixes his gaze. There's a confidence in the Lord. He's not intimidated by this false teacher. And he said, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil. Notice, not a son of Jesus. You're a son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Again, here, Saul is known as Paul. Uh, Scholars believe it is an adopted Roman name. He now rises to prominence as we see him taking Elimus to task. Notice from here on out, it's not going to be Barnabas and Saul. It'll usually be Paul and Barnabas at this point. Just an interesting little note. Elimus is a Jewish false prophet, a magician who is trying to keep the proconsul from the truth. And Paul, being filled with the Holy Spirit, again, one commentator said, not for the first time. We see in, in chapter 9 he was filled but renewedly and specially inspired to utter this denunciation, which is therefore not the natural expression of any merely human sentiment or feeling, but an authoritative declaration of God's purposes and judgments. In other words, my friends, Paul is not going on a rant here. He's not, he's not acting in the flesh. He's not acting unseemly or untowardly. He is full of the Spirit. He identifies exactly who Elimus is and what Elimus is up to, and he calls him out and calls him exactly what he is. He does not mince words. He does not mince words. He is full of all deceit and fraud. He is a son of the devil, an enemy of all righteousness, and he makes crooked the straight ways of the Lord. He is a perverter of truth. He is of his father, the devil, and like him, he is a liar. His message, uh, his, his message and words harm. They don't help. They deceive. He is unscrupulous. He is cunning uh, and mischievous. He vehemently opposes what is right and the truth of the Lord he perverts and twists. And Paul, filled with the Spirit, now utters a curse upon Elimus, saying, Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately we are told, A mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. This is a very serious warning, not only to Elimus, my friends, but to every false teacher who thinks that they can utter the words of God and and do disservice to Jesus Christ and think that they're going to get away with this. They should take, take this message to heart of what happens here. He is made blind for a time, not definitely, not forever, The Lord might have and would have been just to just strike him dead. And the Lord doesn't. It's a serious warning. And he removes his sight, 
demonstrating and lending credence to the truth of the apostles' message. Reminds me of Moses when he performed the feats, the acts of God, by turning uh, the, the water into blood and, and, um, and by turning the staff into a serpent. And the Egyptian magicians did the same thing. And I always wondered, why didn't they do something opposite, like make the blood back into water? And they didn't. Perhaps that's the foolishness that Paul is talking about in Second Timothy of these Egyptian magicians. But um, he couldn't undo it. Elimus can't undo what Paul has done. Here's this contest, like Elijah and Mount Carmel. They're dancing and cutting themselves and crying out, and nothing happens. And Elijah humbly prays, and fire comes down from the sky. Here's the power of God demonstrated, not just by the words that the apostles spoke, but by the fact that he spoke this, and the man who walked freely in the courts of the proconsul is now blind and has to, has to be led around by hand. It lends credence to the message that the apostle spoke, but also it demonstrates that Elimus himself was a man in truth in the dark. Interesting. This man who was so full of himself and how he directed others was now made incapable and would have to be led by others. There was a great humbling in this. So my friends, we must remember that missions and ministry will be opposed by Satan and his servants, and we must never be surprised, though we are surprised. We have to help each other say, yeah, 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 don't be surprised by this, remember? Don't be surprised. But notice this, and we're going to wrap this up in just a second. The Lord will be with his church and his servants to give and to provide what is needed to bring about victory for the gospel. And that's our last little verse, verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, but listen to this, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. I would have thought he was amazed at what happened, that the blindness of Elimus, but it actually says he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't believe a guy coming back from the dead. The man believes the word of the Lord. He believes it. The Lord had accomplished his purpose. My friends, things don't always go uh, as we so often plan or hope. We set about to serve the Lord faithfully who calls and directs in prayer, using the gifts he gives and carrying the truth of Christ forward. We strive to be faithful to the Lord. We don't know what the Lord is going to do. And sometimes it looks as if we, we hit these setbacks like, oh no, everything's going to fail. Friends, ours is not to secure results. That is the Lord's. One waters, one plants. Who gives the increase? The Lord. The Lord gives the increase. Ours is to merely be faithful with that which the Lord has entrusted to us. I want to close by reading Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. This is encouragement for us. And notice again the centrality of the word of God which is being proclaimed. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return uh, do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire 
and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. The Lord saved that proconsul. The battle's the Lord's in all of these things. We, in prayer, trust and obey. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, again for your word and pray that your blessing will be upon us, that our hearts will be free, that we will rejoice in you. What a faithful Savior you are. Thank you so much for this record of how you have worked in your church and how the church uh, interacted with the world and how the world responded to the message. But we rejoice because we know, Lord, that you are not going to fail to gather every one of your people for whom Christ died. Um, You will bring them in. And we thank you for this and thank you for the privilege of being called your people and of being entrusted with this treasure, this gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us wisdom, that you will direct us in the days ahead as to how you would have us reach out. We ask for a great outpouring of your spirit upon us and that you will make it plain to us, Father, where you would have us go and when you would have us go. And until that time, we pray that we would serve you in faithfulness with what you have made known to us. Thank you for this evening. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.